Moving to Live is a podcast about movement and exercise. We bring you interviews with professionals in the movement and exercise field. The goal is to provide information for other professionals and also amateur movement aficionados, people who understand that movement is part of what makes life complete. Some of the people we interview you will have heard of. They're well known in and outside of the movement and exercise profession. Others you may not have heard of, but they have a great deal of knowledge to share. Many people doing the best work spend their time working with people, not working on their social media presence. We're going to give you a chance to learn from some of these talented and knowledgeable individuals, and we're going to learn along with you. Moving to Live podcasts are going to be short. Each interview will be long enough to impart usable information, but short enough to be able to be consumed in a single bout, during your workout, commute, or even during dinner prep. We all like long-form interviews, but time is valuable. Moving to Live wants to give you the option to learn and be entertained without needing to commit 60 minutes at a time for an interview. Give Moving to Live a listen. Check out our sister podcast, FitLab PGH, which highlights people, businesses, events, and activities in the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area that make movement a priority. Moving to Live would love to hear from you. Want to connect with us or have an idea for somebody you think we ought to interview? Drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com, or connect with us on Instagram and Twitter, both underscore mov2liv. We're excited to bring you these interviews, and we think you'll enjoy each and every one that we bring you. Welcome back to another episode of Moving to Live. We're really happy and pleased today to have part two of our interview with Dr. Amanda Stanek. Amanda is a native Canadian who is now living in St. Louis, Missouri. She is the owner and operator of Move, Live, Learn, a physical literacy company, and she's going to give us a definition of physical literacy in just a few minutes, and we're going to learn about how she came up with the idea of Move, Live, Learn, and if you're involved in any sort of movement, either as a professional, an amateur aficionado, somebody who has kids, somebody who is in a position where you could maybe encourage other people in your life to make movement a priority, she has some great information that I think you'll want to listen to. I also want to thank Sam Callen of USA Fencing for introducing me to Amanda after having her on his podcast for USA Fencing. He said, this is somebody you need on Moving to Live. So Dr. Stanek, thanks for joining Moving to Live for part two of our interview. Great to be back. We started uh, part one a couple of weeks ago with asking you to define physical literacy, since that's what you're trying to promote and educate people about. And I think it would be good to just give another definition in case people missed part one or are going to go back and listen to part one. What sure. is what is physical literacy? I'll give the same one. <laughs> it's the competence and confidence to be physically active in a wide variety of environments to benefit yourself, others, and the community. And those wide variety environments, you want to really have a visual land, snow, ice, and water possible. So it's certainly not just moving in a gym or it's not just moving on a sheet of ice or just in a pool. Amanda finished up our first part of our interview by talking about how to make change takes time and how you have to realize that sometimes people want to make changes in their physical environment if they're aldermen or principals or superintendents, but it takes time to do that. And I know that she described in part one of the interview that she had a very active childhood. And I say this, uh, that she she had a advantage over many kids who grew up in towns or cities and that she grew up in the country as I did. And it was kind of expected that she would climb trees, ice skate, uh, play sports you weren't very good at and 
probably spend a lot of time work, working uh, on your lawn or if uh, na- neighbors had property. So you got a great deal of physical literacy. Well, my question to you that I want to start out with about this is graduated as a soccer player, moved on and were a physical education teacher, had the opportunity to earn a master's and a doctorate. Why move, live, learn as opposed to just burying yourself in academia and pumping out reams of research that some people will read, but probably not people outside of the field? Yeah. (laughs) Well, you make it sound like it was a really difficult decision. (laughs) Yeah, no, actually, I was thriving in higher education. And my dean suggested I even go up for tenure early. My partner, he was he was in the US, he was finishing up his PhD in engineering at UVA. And I was a professor at my alma mater and undergrad alma mater in Nova Scotia. And so it was 100% only because of personal reasons that I left higher education at that time. And I really kind of thought I would go back. And we, I moved down to the States and we had our first two children. They were close in age and he took a job in defense. And so his job was moving us every six months. So if any of you were, have taught or have been in higher education, the job market when you know you're moving every six months isn't really the best situation. And so we were also moving every six months to places that I didn't know anybody. And so we were also, as Ben mentioned, well, I'm Canadian and I, the kind of the deal was that I would get a year off with each child that I had because that's the maternity leave that you get in Canada. And so that was part of my negotiations in my marriage. And so, um, I say this joking, he, you know, but, but it was the the truth. And so I took some time off to, to be, to raise the kids. And we were living in Colorado for Jim's work and people would say, Hey, could you help us with this curriculum? Or could you come and do this workshop for my teachers? So there was a little things here and there. And we were sitting down doing our taxes. And my husband said, and I, and in the meantime, when I was in higher education, I worked a little bit, my service component, I worked as a life skills coach for the women's hockey team at the university I was at and helping them develop and making connections to the lessons on the ice to how to be good student, good students and good people in the community. And so I loved it. And I was like, but I was a, kind of surprised at how much of my research from education was pouring into what I was doing with the athletes. And I was kind of wondering why don't, why is it more, why don't sport and education talk more? Or I would be invited to give a talk at a health conference and none of the research from the other disciplines were being really presented there. And so, you know, the, the country kid, I was like, why can't everybody get out of their silos to the same place to come up with comprehensive solutions Instead of all, you know, working on our own thing and thinking we pr- we're better than everyone else, because I heard the comments. My colleagues in sports psych or ex phys would make jokes about me being in a in a PhD um, program for pedagogy, and it, it's it was so ignorant of them, especially when it, the fact was I had about twenty jobs to apply to to their point one twenty, <laughs> right? That's a number. So I mean, it was it was one of those things where. I, I never thought, I, I remember saying I would do this as my full-time gig because every contract that I get as a really move, live, learn, I'm an independent contractor. I also have to then, as I've grown, get subcontractors and, and team different teams for different projects. But I never thought, oh, I want to own my own business. It was just the work started coming. 
And then I was, this is really fun. And I'm a people pleaser. And so the relationships that I was forming were wonderful. People would say, okay, this woman would go through a brick wall for me. If, if I needed to take a hit on something because it was the right thing to do, or if I, you know, I would always make sure my, I told them from the beginning, every time I work with someone, my number one goal is that when we finish, you're going to want to tell someone that they would have to work with us. And, and I am really proud that all my work is pretty much referral based at this point. And, and that was cause I wanted to set out to get everybody out of their silos. And so I, th- I remember saying to my husband and I think other people might feel this way, but I think probably more women than men. But I remember saying, people will think I think I'm good if I have my own website. <laughs> and, and I said, I don't want people to think that I think I'm good. And he goes, do you think you're good? I said, I think I'm very good at what I do. And he said, well, then why the hell do you care what, what someone else would say? But it's that idea of putting yourself out there. I mean, we eloped. I, didn't, I don't need to be the center of attention. You put me in front of 2,000 people and I come alive and I'll speak and won't be nervous and I'll have a blast. But just the idea of putting my own website up at first, I was like, gosh, well, they, anyway, I got over it because I was able to travel. I was able to learn. I feel like instead of teaching the same classes every year, I, I, I really loved higher ed. I really had no desire to leave, but teaching the same classes only for, for five years. I, I mean, I would change them and I was current, but every single project that I do is different and they all push me a little bit more. And, and I love that. I love that feeling of being a little sometimes out of my, not really out of my comfort zone, but when, when your room gets messy before it looks clean, you know, that feeling Ben, when you would like meet with your advisor and you'd leave your advisor's office, you'd be like, what the hell (laughs) your brain feels like that. And then you figure it out and then you break it down and then you're like, okay, I got this. I feel like that all the time. And I love, I mean, I love that. I think what's what's interesting with everybody that I interview for moving to live is, and I say this in a good way, <laughs> it works out that everybody I interview is atypical in what they do. They have a atypical story in how mm. they got to where they are, mm-hmm. and they have a atypical way of looking at what they do. And to me, that's good because I think there's a practice or habit or a tendency in higher education, and this is speaking as somebody who's in higher education, of saying we do it this way because this is the way it's been done and we can make small changes, but we can't make big sweeping changes. Would I be correct in saying that as a relatively small company who's not beholden to state or provincial or university guidelines, you can make quick changes to meet potential customers or clients' needs that you couldn't make if you were part of a larger company or or university? Yeah, I mean, exactly. I don't have to listen. I don't have to sit in meetings and listen to people who want to hear themselves talk, you know, or argue like there's no ego in move, live, learn. Right. I mean, there's ego in terms of we feel confident and and we work hard. And but that's the last you'll need to hear me say that, because because our goal is to make our client happy to to do everything in our power to make an awesome product. So I even what I took from higher ed, which I think sets me apart from other contractors is I budget and weave in a peer review version of drafts for deliverables. And people love that. And, and I do because I am open to it. And I will pay my colleagues to, to critique me, you know, I, I can, but I can be vulnerable and open because I'm like, look, it's going to look messy before it looks great, you know? And so, yeah, my path is so not conventional, but every, every decision that I made in the past 
10 years was for, you know, the, what kind of the best decision for the family. I never realized move, live, learn would, would take off and, and be as successful as it was. I, I figure I probably should have, I'm resourceful. Like I'm a hard worker. I paid my way through school. You know, I I'm resourceful that way. But if you were to ask my, my partner, he would say, um, Oh no, I knew, I mean, he pushed me to do it. And he's like, well, of course it would be like, nobody works harder than you. You know, of course it would be, which was really nice to have that support at home. I think what would be interesting to learn a little more about, I know that people are always willing to take something for free and then you find out how they really value it when they actually have to pay for it. So could you, mm-hmm. could you talk about, I know you mentioned a little bit earlier that word of mouth is really valuable now because you've developed a reputation and paying clients have said, you know, this, she's a really good person. Her company move, live, learn is going to deliver on what they promise. How did you go about getting that first paying contract with Move Live Learn? I think so. I wrote the curriculum that the physical education curriculum for Nova, the province of Nova Scotia, which was a pretty. I mean, that's a pretty big job. So I led the team of twenty uh, on that particular project. I was sharing. I did some pilot research and and was sharing some of the findings on Twitter. And the next thing I knew, I got a call from somebody in Europe who wanted to see more of my research and then invited me to apply to lead some research that ended up being, I mean, I went over to the Olympic Museum and it was on display and I presented it over there, which was amazing. And it was on female upward social mobility of elite, elite female wrestlers. And so it was those were the, like the first contract I think was probably the Nova Scotia curriculum one, but then it was just all like kind of random. And somebody knew me who mentioned me to someone else. The next thing I know, Jackie Joyner Kersey's at my kitchen table and we're going through her book and deciding how we were going to take her winning in life program and, uh, help her help people. You know, that's, what's so inspiring. I mean, that's the most inspiring human on the planet. And I get to learn from her grace and her humility and her, passion for children and, and her belief in their potential. So it just feels really remarkable. I mean, I sometimes I'm like, how am I living this life? You know, I was such an Olympic. I was one of those kids. I had a, an 88. I had an old, you know, those old school photo albums where you, you rip up the, the, the page and you stick it on and then you put the page back down. Do you mm-hmm. remember, you know what I'm talking about? I, I had, I cut out every article on the 88 Olympics that was in our paper the year it was in Canada. And I had like three of those filled. And so then I get to go over there, you know, of course not as an athlete, that wasn't, it, I was never going to be an Olympic athlete, but that was my Olympics. You know, all of these little projects are my moments, my, and, and how much I get to learn from them is amazing. And, and I'm very proud to get those contracts with move, live, learns logo on the proposal. And I'm more proud when they tell me at the end that, that there's a friendship that developed, you know, because I want to be, if I'm writing youth development curriculum, I want people to view me as a good, reliable person. I don't want to develop a good youth development program or do good research in youth development, but be a jerk. You've mentioned when we were chatting prior to recording that you do program development across a wide lifespan, although the majority of your work is with children. Do you think that's because of your background as a researcher in physical education or because more companies, corporations, institutions 
hiring organizations recognize that, hey, we can have the most impact on children before they're physically and emotionally developed. We can make show them that movement is fun. It doesn't have to be competitive. Yeah, I think people are always looking for I think there's always been youth curriculum developed. I think that as education has evolved, we, you know, we've come up with new programs and new initiatives, but one of the things that we try to do is not to have thrown out the baby with the bathwater. And so what was good about some of these old things, you know, we don't need tech and all these after school activity programs, you know, let's disconnect from Wi-Fi and have these kids learn how to connect with each other, but also you then teaching about decision-making with tech. So I think there was just, it was kind of a time when there needed to be new programs, but also my unconventional, really odd path was actually perfect because I had the education background. I understand the education system. I taught. And so when a lot of people are trying to come in and develop a curriculum that they want to deliver in schools, they may have gone through that whole process, but had a contractor who doesn't have a clue what national standards are. Right. And so there was, it was a, like I talked about my buddies who made fun of me for being in that program. They couldn't do this because they don't understand how national standards work. They don't understand assessment or monitoring evaluation. It's not that they couldn't understand it, but I lived it, you know, I taught in it. So I think that people, a lot of people, when they come to me, they're, they're relieved that I understand the education system because they would like their programs to be flexible in terms of how they're disseminated. You know, we might want a youth sport coach to use it, or maybe an after school club could use it, but we would love PE teachers or classroom teachers to use it. And then I understand the difference of what it would look like it if it was written for a classroom teacher as opposed to a physical education teacher because because they have different skills and different experiences and different education. Dr. Sanic, you talked a little bit, uh, I'm not sure if it was in the first part of the second interview or the first one about how you make sure that your kids play in community-based sports activities and not the so-called select or travel teams. And I know that your programming is all about physical literacy for everybody, not just those kids who may excel at sports at seven before puberty hits. Do you have any, uh, or have you seen any blowback when you get a contract to go to these facilities where people say, well, what you're describing isn't hard enough and the kids are going to be bored because, you know, they're playing soccer or they're playing basketball or baseball. They don't want to go back to these rudimentary types of activities. Yeah. Well, the activities that I have, they incorporate, they'll incorporate all of the same things, but the kids won't say that because in our, in the activities that we develop, the kids have the opportunity to play. And so I also don't criticize parents who do choose the, the select for their kid. I think, we're all trying to do what's best for our particular kids. And, you know, I have some nieces and nephews who have played triple a hockey in Canada all growing up and they, they love it. And they, they specialized young and it, it, they were craving it. They love it. They love it. They love it. And so I'm not going to criticize that, you know, who, who am I to criticize a parent for trying to give their parent lots of opportunities? It's just not right for us because we want our children to really not just be good in one sport. We want them to feel confident and competent so that they will play intramurals in college. So they'll pick up and and train for a triathlon while they're, while they're a freshman in college, you know, so all of these different things, if they want to, you know, um, go snowboarding, if they're up in up North on a Tuesday night after lab, it's, it's a healthier behavior than going out and eating wings and drinking beer. Right. And so just helping, no, I don't get any kickback because, because our, our 
programs or when I taught, you know, sometimes the kids would be like early in my career, can we play? Can we play? And it was kind of drills and stuff. And you know what? Yeah. Let them play, you know, let them play three V three, let them learn the skills within the game. And that's teaching games for understanding instructional model. And a lot of the best coaches, they do this by nature anyway. So I haven't, I have not experienced any kickback because when you're playing and when you're moving and when a program is developed, well, the kids are having more opportunity to practice and then you can differentiate instruction. You only use your left foot. You only touch the ball one time. You can't take two touches. So you can easily then go in and, and challenge each kid. So, and the materials that we write or the trainings that we do to prepare people to deliver the programs that we write, it teaches the coaches that or the facilitators or their teachers or their leaders. Do you find that there are children who come up to you or the facilitators afterwards and say, I never really liked to move before, but after doing this, it's like, you know, it doesn't have to be competitive. I really enjoy doing it and it's fun and I want to keep doing it. Yeah. I need to be clear that like how we define competition, the kids still experience competition in, in a lot of what we do. It's just the competition is against themselves, right? So it's like a personal challenge. So if obviously when I taught Russell Wilson, when he was in middle school, he was more um, proficient mover than some of his peers, but I could still challenge them to meet their very best to a point where they're challenged. And, 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 you know, it, I can visualize them doing a round robin badminton where I would had criteria and I was watching them as they played in this round robin tournament. I was looking at their skills in the game setting when they were playing. And I can have visualized these kids running over to me saying, so where's my serve and what do I need to do to make it better? You know, they might've been winning everything, but that wasn't what was going to have me tell them they were proficient. It was, were they mastering the decision-making and were they showing me great form in the game? So, so there is, there is, uh, there is some competition there. So I just wanted to make sure, because I don't want people thinking that it's all just warm by warm and fuzzy kumbaya and kids aren't working hard, you know, because they are working hard, but the goal is that they're working hard with a smile on their face while they're hanging out with their friends. And you have to tell them that they worked hard because they don't really realize it. Would it be correct to say that you're encouraging intrinsic, uh, competition, competition with themselves versus and extrinsic where they're trying to compete against other people? Yeah. And it's all based on the goal orientation theory. And this research started in the early eighties by aims and aims in the classroom. And it, and it was how we define success. So we can define it as winning, being better than others. You know, society defines success as having a lot of money, a big house, sending your kid to the right school oftentimes. Or we can define success as doing our best, mastering a skill, or improving. And I, well, I would never grade a kid in physical education on improvement because of growth and maturation, or they would dodge the test the first time because they're smart. But teaching them how to set goals on how to maintain or improve is very important. And so, yeah, absolutely. How, how they're defining success and how we define it in the program. And then every single activity we do, it's not, it's not effective if they can't tell us what they gained from it and where they can transfer that to life outside the program, whether it's PE class or whether it's a sport. So if we're talking to our kids about, you know, you get, when you get knocked down, you get back up. So, so they need to be able, if we're not doing our job, if they can't tell us when they could use that outside of, out of the sport, because, because they, these connections have to be made intentionally because we all played sports with people who didn't get the same positive lessons from them that we did, even though we went to the same practices and grew up through the same programs. 
I think what's also interesting, in addition to working with children, you do a little bit of work with uh, older children. I, th- I think we can define mm-hmm. adults as older children. <laughs> I, I know uh, as somebody who is a long-term endurance athlete who does straight-ahead activities because I'm good at it, and recently within the past six or seven months when I'm in the woods, I start walking on trees and things like that. And I was, on the one hand, thinking intellectually, not surprised, but on the other hand, personally thinking, well, I'm in pretty good shape and how difficult it was to move in different directions. Mm. Um, now, I'll claim that maybe some of the movement problems were because I had dogs strapped to my waist and they were tugging, but in all honesty, having to fight against them actually helped improve the balance because I knew mm-hmm. what to hold again. But my question is, with some of the things that you're doing with children, even though the older children programs are smaller, do you see ways that these movement intrinsic competitions, for lack of a better term, can be transferred to the older children or adults, uh, given the fact that it really can be, if you're not a good mover, very, very intimidating to go to a local health club or a gym? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's really, that's why we want, that's why the more and more and more is good. You know, that's why it's not just physical education teacher's job. It's not just parents' job. It's not just a school district's job. It's not just community rec's job or the youth sport job, but it's it's everyone. And I always like to look at that visual of it. I think of a spider web and each strand of silk and, and, and think of physical literacy as that spider web because each strand of silk plays a role in supporting the journey. And so if if one role isn't there, okay, it's not the end of the world, but we need to provide as many supports as possible. And it is, it's heartbreaking. It's absolutely heartbreaking when, you know, I meet women who are 50 or that, that just, they don't, or men that don't feel confident or comfortable to join. But I mean, you know, that's why join a gym. I mean, really like uh, gyms aren't that fun, right? So so this is my whole thing too. Like we're putting, we're trying to put like these kinds of gyms in schools. I mean, I know gym rats and I think that's cool. If, if you're a gym rat, I think that's amazing because I think whatever you find that wants you to move is awesome. But, but this whole movement of trying to get people in and join a gym, you know, we have to be honest, those gyms are just trying to keep their lights on. They want a membership. They, they want your money, right? Whereas I don't, I just want you to want to move. And I I try to say, you don't need anything other than the outdoors to do that. Um, So now I, we have supports. I have, I have three young children. So I have equipment in my house. My husband still likes to do Olympic style lifting. So we've got that in our basement. Like we've made a choice. We didn't have decor, but we had a really nice treadmill, you know, um, we have bikes. We were driving really old cars, but we have really nice bikes hanging up upside down in our garage. And so, you know, making these choices and, and, um, and I always, you know, I already tell my kids, you know, you want to, you want to choose a partner that likes to move like you do, because it's so nice that mom and dad support each other with that. Sometimes, um, and, and what I've been doing now with the, the little one who's one is I'll invite my, my friends from like the other moms who I might not normally have ran with because I'm faster runner than them. Um, but when I'm pushing the baby on a hilly route, you know, we're, we're about the same pace. And I had a mom come up to me almost like Terry the other day, thanking me for getting her out because her mom is going through some stuff with cancer. And, and she just, she said what she's getting from these runs with nature around positive, happy people 
is really helping her. And I say physical education stuff. We talk so much about fighting obesity or having the best athletes, but really it's not, that's not what we're trying to do. We, we are really trying to empower people and, and let people feel social health in this time where they feel like their best friend is their phone, remind them to, to the connections that they make through movement. And, and so that's what I really try to, you know, we, we try to teach these lessons in our, in our teenage curriculum. And, and I'm now working on a program for NCAA student athletes, um, with Jackie Joyner's teachings and really going to help them with that, preparing them for when they transition out of college to, to really think about those things. Cause it is such a different time, as you know, whether it's division three or division one, that's a lot of time that you're, you're giving in a sport. And when you leave that, you know, if, if they're, if they can only move when someone's telling them to move because they have been specialized for so long, like let's help them to prepare to find other ways to want to, to move their bodies. And I realized you asked before, has anyone come up and said something about a program? I did have someone from Los Angeles come up from Cedar sinai Medical Center where we wrote a health curriculum. So it wasn't a movement curriculum per se. It was health, but it was after school program. And she said that their turnover rate of the people who lead it has gone down tremendously because they have so much more fun teaching it. It's like a project-based learning type where the kids come up with how they're going to make their community healthier and then they research it and then they put on this fair or whatever it is they decide. And that the kids who normally would come once and never return are now doing all three sessions that are offered each year. So that was really, I mean, I don't know which made me more proud, the fact that they're, the teachers are staying longer or that the kids are coming back. But it was... Um, you know, I think that's pretty telling. Often I don't get a lot of feedback because my job is to deliver the resource and then my job is over. So I need to start kind of reaching out to past clients that you got me really thinking that I need to do that. So I'm really happy you asked me that question. <laughs> oh, good. I think one of the important things with moving to live is we have the ethos movement as part of what makes life complete. And whether you're a professional or an amateur aficionado or just know you need to move more, becoming aware of people outside of the quote unquote exercise movement field like Amanda is important. Um, she referred to the silo technique where the physical education teachers and experts do their thing and the exercise physiologists do their thing and the strength coaches do their thing. I think that must be a Canadian phrase, even though I've heard it before, because Dean Somerset used that exact same thing talking about personal trainers and physical therapists. We've had the good fortune to spend uh, part two of an interview with Dr. Amanda Stanick. She is the owner and operator and program developer with uh, co-operators of Move, Live, Learn, which promotes physical literacy. And I think she has a very good idea behind this in encouraging people of all ages to move, making sure that children, whether they're highly skilled athletes or not skilled athletes, to recognize that movement is part of what makes their life complete. Amanda, I want to thank you for joining Moving to Live, and I think what you're doing is extremely interesting. For somebody who's listening to this, uh, maybe they're a parent who has a child who just doesn't like to learn because they have a or they're having an experience in their school or with their coaches where their child just says, yeah, I don't want to do that anymore because I don't enjoy playing the sport or I don't enjoy the physical education class because of the way the teacher is, if this is a parent who isn't active like you and your husband is, are, what would you recommend that those parents could do to maybe get their kids to say, you know, moving can be fun? Yeah, you know, I th one of the things I think the parents should do is talk to the PE teacher. I mean, oftentimes 
they're they're isolated in a school physically and otherwise. And so if, if it's not a quality physical education program, and I'm not naive to think that they all are quality because they're not, I, I would go in and, and just express some concerns about that and, and ask the teacher to take a special interest in, in their child. To, and that might spark something, right? Um, the other thing that I would do is I would reach out to friends and families that do have um, a more active lifestyle and parents feel more comfortable in in activities. I know one thing that I would do a lot last year was I would go skating with my big girls and let a bunch of people know. And if there were people who didn't feel comfortable going on the ice, I would invite them and say in a text, I can, you can, anybody can take their kids as long as you'll help me with the baby. Right. And so reaching out to your friends who were active. So I could teach my kids can skate independently. So I could teach their friends how to skate and their moms would hold my baby or their dads on the side. So there, you know, it, it is a community and I look to other, I mean, I have one, it's, it, there's no shame in it. I have one friend who's an avid reader and avid read. She loves children's literature. I just text her. I'm like, Shauna, my kids are reading these levels. Tell me some good nonfiction stuff. They're obsessed with nonfiction. And she'll get, send me like the most amazing things for us to look for at the library. So I do it. You know, I, I have, I'm not going to pretend I know where all the good children's literature is because I don't, but I know that I have a friend in my tribe that does. And so encouraging them not to feel unconscious about it, but also to realize that you don't want your kid to feel that way, that you don't want your kid to feel uh, uncomfortable with movement. And so to take that step, I have some articles on my blog that, you know, that might help in some small way, um, that, they would be welcome to peruse through. So there's a lot of active for life is a nice .ca is a nice website with lots of free resources, all about physical literacy that some folks back North, um, developed. And so there's, there are, you know, if I guess there is a good thing about tech other than cool podcasts with Ben there, you know, get online and, and find ways. There's a lot to, but, but just take some action. And then thinking about, each season trying something new and maybe what would be really cool uh, is doing it together. If you don't feel that comfortable and your child's not feeling that comfortable, maybe you could go on some of these, you know, take this, take this on as something to, to increase family quality time, you know? And, and so let's, so maybe we're going to go for a hike and, and set a goal for every other weekend or something. You're going to go do something and try something new. I think that's some great information. We've had the good fortune to talk to Dr. Amanda Stanick of Move, Live, Learn. She preaches and practices with her own life, as you'll see in the podcasts, the importance of physical literacy. I think probably the most valuable advice you can take away from this podcast with Dr. Stanick is she's led by example, like most of Moving to Live interviews. And for her, I think what she's demonstrated is be willing to try new things and don't be afraid to ask other people for help if it's outside of your comfort zone. And I know for many people, moving is outside of your comfort zone. So maybe, as she said, reach out to your tribe. We'll have uh, show notes with links to her website and all the sites she mentioned. So Dr. Stanek, thank you for taking time to talk to Moving to Live. Thank you so much. And I hope you have a great day and best wishes to you in all your future endeavors. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of Moving to Live. Make sure you check out the show notes for contact information for our latest guest, as well as links about all the things we talked about. Intro and exit music is Traveling Light by Jason Shaw. 
You can subscribe to Moving to Live on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play and be notified about new episode releases. Have any questions, comments, or suggestions? Drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com. Connect with us on Twitter or Instagram, both underscore mov2liv. Please tell your friends about Moving to Live. It's a go-to place for information for movement and exercise professionals and amateur aficionados who understand that movement is part of what makes your life complete. Until next week, keep on moving.